today's scripture reading uh, is a fun one, uh, and it's uh, from Leviticus chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. God spoke to Moses and Aaron. When someone has a swelling or a blister or a shiny spot on the skin that might signal a serious skin disease on the body, bring him to Aaron the priest or to one of his priest's sons. The priest will examine the sore on the skin. If the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears more than skin deep, it is a serious skin disease and infectious. After the priest has examined it, he will pronounce the person unclean. If the shiny spot on the skin is white but appears to be only on the surface and the hair has not turned white, the priest will quarantine the person for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will examine it again. If in his judgment the sore is the same and has not spread, the priest will keep him in quarantine for another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest will examine him a second time. If the sore has faded and hasn't spread, the priest will declare him clean. It is a harmless rash. The person can go home and wash his clothes. He is clean. But if the sore spreads after he has shown himself to the priest and has been declared clean, he must come back again to the priest who will conduct another examination. If the sore has spread, the priest will pronounce him unclean. It is a serious skin disease and infectious. God spoke to Moses. These are the instructions for the infected person at the time of his cleansing. First, bring him to the priest. The priest will take him outside the camp and make an examination. If the infected person has been healed of the serious skin disease, the priest will order two live clean birds, some cedar wood, scarlet thread, and hyssop to be brought for the one to be cleansed. The priest will order him to kill one of the birds over fresh water in a clay pot. The priest will then take the live bird with the cedar wood, the scarlet thread, and the hyssop and dip them in the blood of the dead bird over fresh water and then sprinkle the person being cleansed from the serious skin disease seven times and pronounce him clean. Finally, he will release the live bird in the open field. The cleansed person, after washing his clothes, shaving off all his hair, and bathing with water, is clean. Afterwards, he may again enter the camp, but he has to live outside his tent for seven days. On the seventh day, he must shave off all his hair, from his head, beard, eyebrows, all of it. He then must wash his clothes and bathe all over with water. He will be clean. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Matt said that's a fun passage because he says, I have no idea where you're going with that. Well, that'll all be clear very soon. And uh, in, in, fact, uh, in fact, it's more relevant um, uh, than ever at this point in time. And so I was speaking with uh, Nate Swanson today when he showed up for uh, in-person church and said, how long has it been? It's been too long. And Nate said, March 1st. And Nate, do you know how many, you know how many days ago that was? Too many days. I did count. It's been 204 days since we last had a normal church service. That was March 1st. And at that time, COVID was little more than a, a rumor. Uh, something bad that was happening over there in China. It couldn't get us. We'd been through this before. You know, we'd heard, um, you know, these things that we thought were just scaremongering with SARS, and there was Ebola, and there was the swine flu, and, and the avian influenza. I mean, COVID, it didn't even come up in the, uh, in the debates for the Democratic candidates uh, in, in the nomination debates. They didn't even mention COVID. Uh, the president himself said that it was 15 cases and was going to soon be down to zero. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, 
said that this was really something that wasn't too dangerous, and so people should just go about their daily lives, and there was very little risk of catching it, especially uh, on the subways. And so he told people to go about their, their daily lives. And then all of a sudden, on, on March 8th, that Sunday, it was, well, hey, guys, you know, it's okay if you don't want to shake hands or hug or, you know, get too close or, 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 or whatever. And then on March 11th, Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID right before uh, a Utah Jazz game. And Tom Hanks, word came out that him and his wife had gotten it in Australia. And then it seemed everything was shutting down. And so March 13th, that was the last day that my kids attended um, school. And uh, March 15th, we started live streaming church. March 27th, we got the stay-at-home order from the governor. And ever since, it's been one challenge after another, to put it mildly. And I don't know about you, but I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that ever since then, ever since that first, second, third week of March, um, I've been exhausted. Just exhausted. I'm tired. I'm tired of not getting to see anyone. I'm tired of things like the, the waiting pool uh, by our house, at the park by our house. It's closed. Can't go there. I'm tired of having to uh, walk out in the street to avoid people when, you know, we're going out for a family walk and people are coming our way. And I'm tired of people having to go out of our way to avoid us. I, I'm tired of having to tell my kids why, hey, you know, this year we just, we're not going to be having any birthday parties. I'm tired of Zoom meetings or Google Hangouts, whatever, whatever, whatever your choice is. I'm tired of those. I'm tired of having to remember to have a mask with me wherever I go. And when I forget one, having to dig in the backseat of the car for that crumpled used one to give it yet another run for its money. I'm tired of being told that there's nothing we can do but, but hunker down and wait months on end until we have a vaccine. And I'm tired of that feeling that no one has a plan. Not at the federal government, not at the state level, not in the school board, right? And so we're just stuck. We're stuck in COVID purgatory for the foreseeable future. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that COVID is a terrible disease and that we must take steps to suppress it. And, uh, you know, uh, in true kind of hipster fashion, I was, a ma I was into masks before they were cool. Uh, but I remember back when the CDC was saying, you only need a mask if uh, you work in a healthcare setting or you're sick, which made me just think, hmm, but they don't work for anyone else, which just didn't make any sense to me at, at, at the moment. And, but I do have this sense of, of dread that's gnawing away at my gut, this kind of over, underlying sense of dread as I worry about the second order effects uh, of what we're going through and the third order and the fourth order and the fifth order effects of everything we're doing. What, what's going to happen to overall other aspects of public health and, and of civil society as we remain isolated from each other? And we seem to be failing everyone, especially children, especially families. You know, I think of the effect even that's going to happen on, on people getting married, the effect that's going to have people on the fertility rate and starting families. How many millions of human beings are actually not going to exist because of this disease and our response to it? It, it buggers the mind when you think about it. I think about the people who have turned to drugs and alcohol abuse during this time. Um, I think about people who've given up hope and committed suicide during this time, people who haven't gone in to get medical treatment so their cancer didn't get caught during this time. It, it's just, it's terrible on every single level when we think about it. And as I look forward, I'm tired, I'm exhausted as I think about 
what distance education is going to look like this fall. And it's just this energy vacuum on my soul. And so in the midst of being tired of all of this, I'm saying, God, where is the light at the end of the tunnel? And if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, is it just going to be a train that's going to flatten us? So what's the answer? What can we do? And honestly, this is where the Bible actually has such deep wisdom for us when it comes to understanding what do we do in the face of a pandemic or or other infectious diseases. And I think that actually one of the things that has hurt us in the 21st century in in the U.S. is that we're waiting for some kind of high-tech intervention to save us. You know, depending on the various plans you look at, some are saying, we need 20 million tests a day. If we could do 20 million tests a day, we could, we could get back to life as normal. And I don't even know if we've hit a million more than maybe one time in this country. Or we're going to get a vaccine or several vaccines. Or we're going to get some kind of therapeutics. Or, or we're going to have smartphone apps that can track us wherever we go. So they'll warn us if we've come into contact with someone with, with the disease. But actually, we have a major tool in our toolkit that we haven't even turned to, and it's an ancient and venerable technology. It's thousands of years old, and we see it right here in the book of Leviticus. And what's astonishing to me in the midst of this pandemic, all the months that it's been going on, is that we haven't even really tried the ways of ancient wisdom. We've somehow accepted that widespread and indefinite lockdowns are kind of the primary tool we have in our toolkits before we can get the technology figured out. So, so locking down entire populations as a public health strategy, which is literally unprecedented. It's unprecedented in world history. And we're ignoring the process set forth in Scripture, which has served humankind for millennia. Before we hubristically came to the false conclusion that infectious diseases were a thing of the past. And so when this one arose, it caught us flat-footed. I mean, the United States used to have, I think, over 50 uh, centralized quarantine centers across this country, and then they were shut down in the late 60s and into the 1970s, and the reason for that was we thought, literally, the CDC said, we thought that infectious diseases were done, that that era of dealing with them was done. Well, the joke's on us. And so what does the Mosaic Law propose as a strategy to combat a potential outbreak of infectious disease? What we see in our passage this morning is a three-pronged strategy. That I characterize, it's right there in the sermon title, test, isolate, reintegrate. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, much of what I'm going to go on to say here is inspired by the work of of Lyman Stone. Uh, He is a a demographer who until very recently was living in Hong Kong uh, with his wife. They were part of a Lutheran mission in Hong Kong. Um, So his wife and infant child, they lived in Hong Kong. They had to leave um, as the the national security law changed, so they had to leave that country. But they were very early... um, in in terms of having to face how do they live with what at first was called in Hong Kong the new pneumonia. There was this new pneumonia spreading around. And so, um, and Mike Nelson and I actually interviewed him for the Like Trees Walking podcast uh, back in in mid-March, just as all hell was starting to break loose. All right, so let's look at Leviticus. What does it say we should do? First test. So the first sign, Matt asked me earlier, have I ever had a white thing on my skin? No, but if I had, Leviticus would have told me what to do. Uh, So it says, you know, at the first sign of a swelling, a spot, an eruption of the skin. The person goes to the priest for inspection. Now, the translation here talks about, or many translations talk about leprosy. But what we know as leprosy, which is the flesh-eating disease where parts of your body start falling off, uh, actually is probably not what's being talked about here. We don't know what the specific disease Moses is referring to is. But we do know that it was infectious enough and it was dangerous and deadly enough that God decided to give instructions to his people for how to deal with it. 
And we'll notice that the testing threshold is not very high. You go at the first sign, it doesn't have to look that bad. And so what the priest sees, if he looks at it, he goes, this could potentially turn into some kind of uh, leprosy. So it's a, treated as a presumptive positive, which would lead to the next step, which was isolating. So first we test, and then we isolate. The person with the spot, the swelling, or the skin eruption is isolated from the community for two weeks in order to keep the disease from spreading. After two weeks, they're re-examined, and if the disease is still spreading, they remain in isolation. But if it's resolved itself, you go through with step three, which is reintegration. So we're testing, not a very high threshold, presumptive positive. We're isolating people for two weeks, re-examining them. And finally, if the person has resolved the disease, they are reintegrated into the community, declared clean, and there's a whole bunch of stuff, uh, you know, uh, with, with birds and sacrifices and religious rituals. But within that are also hygienic practices so that it's clear that the person has been physically and spiritually cleansed. That's what all the washing is about and the shaving of one's hair and eyebrows is all about. You are, are physically and spiritually clean and thus reintegrated into society. So we have it right there in Leviticus. Test, isolate, and reintegrate. That is how you beat an epidemic. And this strategy has actually been used across the world, even through now. We think of, of, of the months-long struggle that we've had with COVID in our own country, whereas a country like Vietnam, you know, I mean, uh, not exactly what I think of when I think of kind of like the highly developed world. They used this strategy, which also goes by the name of centralized quarantine, very early on to help beat the disease, to control its spread. But we've been told that we can't try that because the narrative I think that we're, we're, we're told constantly is that Americans won't do almost anything uh, because we're too selfish or we're too stupid or we have this warped sense of personal freedom or of government tyranny. And so, you know, whereas that might be true or that's true for some people, Americans actually have shown themselves willing to make massive sacrifices to combat this pandemic. And I think it's about time that our public health and government officials actually try something that works. But lastly, and I want to focus very briefly on this, but this is just as important as this public health strategy, it's this. What are our responsibilities as Christians in the midst of a pandemic? And they're twofold. First, we don't abandon our posts. And second, we do everything we can to preserve the lives of our neighbors. Now, in 1527, Martin Luther famously wrote on the responsibilities that Christians have in the midst of an outbreak of the bubonic plague. And for Luther, this was personal. It hit his city. It cost him the life of one of his children, one of his daughters, died in this outbreak of the bubonic plague. And so a pastor wrote him saying, hey, what should we do? when the plague comes to our town. And so this was Luther's advice. And it's actually fascinating, and it's worth studying in full. And uh, Christianity Today has a, 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 a translation of it online that is excellent. And so he wrote this tract in 1527, as the bubonic plague was spreading, whether Christians should flee the plague. And Luther's answer to that question was, unsurprisingly, no. Christians should not flee the plague, although his view was really quite nuanced. He says Christian doctors and nurses have a responsibility not to flee their hospitals. 
Christian government officials have a responsibility not to flee from their cities. Christian pastors should not flee from their congregations. Christian parents should not flee from their children, nor should Christian children flee from their aging parents. Luther's basic position is that love of neighbor compels us to stay put so we can serve our neighbors when they get sick, unless, he says, you can find a a, a suitable substitute to fulfill your obligations of service. So he gives an example of saying, hey, if there's several pastors in a town and some of you decide, you know what, it's not good if all of us get sick and die, so some of us are going to leave the city uh, to, to isolate ourselves and the rest of us are going to stay. He says, so long as there's enough pastors to provide pastoral care for their congregations, he says, then it's okay for some of you to leave. So Luther has a, a nuanced view of, of what fleeing means. And so Stone, Lyman Stone, he summarizes Luther's position thusly. He says, the plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. For Christians, it is better that we should die serving our neighbor than surrounded uh, by a pile of masks we never got the chance to use. And if we do care for each other, if we share masks and hand soap and canned foods and toilet paper, uh, if we are our brother's keeper, we might actually reduce the death toll too. Now, the natural response to this is, well, okay, but actually if we don't stay away from people, uh, we're putting them at risk by potentially exposing them to the virus. Fair point. So this is where the second principle of Christian responsibility in a pandemic comes in. So the first is do not abandon, do not flee from your post. Don't leave people to suffer and to die alone. But the second one, the second principle is this, that the Christian has a responsibility not to harm themselves or another person. In Luther's small catechism, he talks about the implications of of the commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. And it doesn't mean just don't go out and shoot someone or kill someone or murder someone. It has broader implications than that. It also means that we shouldn't do anything that would needlessly or recklessly endanger the life of our neighbor. And so Luther says that even as Christians should not abandon their posts, they also shouldn't do what he calls tempting God through reckless behavior. And so he urges his readers to obey quarantine orders, to fumigate their houses, to take steps to avoid spreading illness, including cutting back on all but the most necessary human interactions. And so what we see here then is that Christians ought to be scrupulous in our public health practices, not out of a sense of self-preservation, but out of a desire to love and serve our neighbors, which means not getting them sick. So we physically distance so that we can be socially present with one another. We wear masks. You know, there's a lot of debate. Do they work or not? I don't know, but, but, but we wear them to at least show our neighbors that we care and we're willing to do something uncomfortable for them. And we gather and we don't sing. We don't do congregational recitation. That is one of the hardest things of being here in worship, but we do it so as to not saturate the sanctuary with aerosols so that we can be saturated, you know, with, with, with God's spirit here. And Lyman Stone, as the new pneumonia was shutting everything down in Hong Kong, uh, he said, you know, the first sacrifice Christians must make to care for our neighbor is our convenience as we enthusiastically participate in aggressive sanitation measures and social distancing. Now, being the church, being the church in the midst of a pandemic, it is immensely challenging. 
There's no solutions in all of this stuff, right? There's only trade-offs. But I believe we must continue to balance these most Christian of values that we do not and cannot abandon our posts. We cannot just say, you know what, we're going to Zoom and we're going to stream for months on end without paying any real price and not recognize that if we make that decision and we do that, there is going to be a very real cost in terms of the human spirit and human connection and human community and our common humanity. It's not good, as Scripture says, for man to be alone, for human beings to be alone. It's not good for us to not be in physical proximity to one another for what could well be over a year. And we cannot needlessly put our neighbors in harm's way. We must show that we are doing, willing to do whatever it takes to mitigate risk and reduce the possibility of spreading the virus, even at the cost of practices we know and love. And so I close with these words from Stone, which have been spoken deeply to me as I seek to pastor faithfully in the months ahead. Be eager to sacrifice for others, even at the cost of your own life. Obsessively maintain a scrupulous hygienic routine to avoid infecting others. Maintain a lifeline to a meaningful human community that can care for your mind and soul. These are the guiding stars that have shepherded Christians through countless plagues for millennia. As the world belatedly wakes up to the fact that the age of epidemics is not over, these ancient ideas still have modern relevance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which becomes relevant to us in new and surprising ways. And so God, we pray for those who are tasked um, with public health, and governing and making decisions during this time. We ask that you would grant them wisdom, that you would grant them courage. And Lord God, we pray for uh, those of us who are citizens and who are subject to the laws of this country, that we would submit to them out of a sense of, of, of respect for people you have placed in positions of authority and out of our mutual obligations that we have with one another. And Lord God, we pray that this country uh, would be freed from the tyranny of this plague and God, that we would be able to return to life together. And we pray, Lord, that we would not flee from our posts, but that we would not also be foolish in our interactions with one another, but with care and circumspectness, show our love for you and neighbor. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.